Yes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second season of For the Love of Books podcast featuring Indian small press authors with host Emma Polova. We're going to have a blast as we celebrate the one-year anniversary of the show brought to you by the following sponsors, Doc Chavin, The Lower Ledger, and Modern History Press, which has been telling empowering stories since 2003. Today, I will be chatting with author Dr. Phil Balfi, who will announce the details of his book giveaway of UP Colony at the end of the interview. Dr. Balfi is an enrolled member of the White Earth Band of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe. He is Professor Emeritus of American Indian Studies at MSU. His book, Three Fires Unity, won the University of Nebraska Press North American Prose Award in 2010. Hello, Phil. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you on the show. What attracted you to Indian studies? Well, you just mentioned that I'm a member of the White Earth Band of Minnesota Chippewa. So uh, I didn't really do very much in that area during my master's thesis, which is, we'll get to that in the UP County book. But once I started to work on my PhD, I thought that that would be the best place to go in the native studies area. So even though my doctorate is technically in English, that's what the department that granted me my doctorate, mm-hmm. it's really an American studies degree and it's really an American Indian studies degree. So that's, well, and I am professor, I had to ask the people who are in charge of my retirement, but I could say that I am professor emeritus of American Indian studies. And they so said yes. That's, that's my <laughs> official title and they said yes. <laughs> Okay, that's cool. I like that. Let's talk about your book, UP Colony, which is an interesting update to your thesis. Is that correct? It's my, yes, my master's thesis update. Yep. Master's thesis. And the book tells the story of resource exploitation in Upper Michigan, which resulted in the UP being a little more than a resource colony. That's That sounds... I've never heard of such a thing. And you also talk about the tale of the Twin Sioux, which looks kind of their future bleak. Why? What happened there? Well, uh, when I first came up here in 1970, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan was on on a decline. All the major industries had closed and the mining, of course, had been very greatly diminished from its heyday way back when. But Sioux, Ontario is still pretty prosperous. They had a steel mill. It's still there, although it's greatly diminished. And they had a paper mill. And their population was considerably more than this than Sioux St. Marie, Michigan. So I was struck by the, the differences between the two cities, you know, mm-hmm. separated by the rapids which are not much of rapids anymore, but you know, quarter mile away is very, very different. And when the industrialization started, it started on both sides. It was essentially the same people who were behind that industrialization of the Twin Sioux. So like we had a big power canal, which is still there, still functioning after a hundred and some years. And so Ontario had a big, uh, 
Tower Canal as well. We had shipping canals. They had a shipping canal. Theirs was greatly reduced in size, etc. But like I said, we had great manufacturing in the early days, and so did Sioux Ontario. But by the time I got up here in 1970, uh, most of the, well, all of the major manufacturing organizations and companies had shut down. And we lost the Air Force Base shortly after I came up here. So that was another blow to the the prosperity, if you will. There was not very much of it left anymore. Population was dwindling. So Ontario was pretty much staying the same. So I was struck by that. Mm -hmm. I grew up near Detroit. And you know, I moved up here to the Sioux to pursue my education at Lake State. That was the thing that struck me the most. The differences between the two cities, like I say, separated by the international border essentially and and at the same time I didn't put this into my thesis but I was also exposed we were we were urban Indians you know growing up in Detroit we were probably the only minority family in the city of Livonia telling the truth but there was a very vibrant native community in Sault Ste. Marie on both sides of the river there's considerable amount of native people up here. And Chippewa County is the uh, most native populated county east of the Mississippi. And it's a fairly vibrant community. At the time though, it really hadn't been flourishing. They had not gotten their federal recognition. They hadn't built their casino and all that stuff. So the, that also struck me, the poverty that the native people suffered under, and the racism, quite frankly. Uh, much of the poverty has been alleviated because of the casino and the jobs that that had created. But, and because of the success of the tribe, there's not as much racism as there was in the past, although mm -hmm. there still is racism up here. I mean, there's racism everywhere, so it shouldn't be that surprising to people. Uh, when I came up here, like I said, I was exposed to the native community. And I didn't, I didn't want to take that into my master's thesis because I had been thinking about the, the twin Sioux and the prosperity <laughs> and the not so prosperous and the resource exploitation and et cetera. So there is a story to be told about the native people and resource exploitation, but it is not in my book. And I think if I was to say that I had a regret, it was, that would be my regret. And I didn't include much of that history. Okay, will so you if include- If I ever do another update, I'll probably- Pardon? <laughs> that was my question. Are you planning on tackling <laughs> this in the near future? Uh, not in the near future. I'm working on another book right now. Mm -hmm. It's almost ready to go. And then I have a, another project that I'm working on that is pretty much just in outline stages. And I'm collecting data for that one right now, too. So those two are going to keep me busy for quite a while. So I'm not sure if I'll ever get to updating this. And I should also tell your listeners, 
that I updated it for this, the 350th anniversary of Sault Ste. Marie, which was in uh, 2018. That's the 350th anniversary. 1668 is when the first French missionaries came up here and established a mission. So that's the date that Sault Ste. Marie uses to date itself as a European place, obviously. Native people have been here since the glaciers receded. That's why it's such an important place for Native people here. But uh, I didn't want to actually revise the thesis mm -hmm. because, you know, first of all, I put a lot of work into it and I thought that it stood fairly well on its own. But when the 350th anniversary came about, uh, people were talking about doing this, about the Sioux and doing this, about and doing, publishing this, et cetera. So I thought, well, it'd be a good idea to revise the thesis. thesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want to read the whole book to you, but there's not been much change as far as the uh, manufacturing areas in the Sioux. We still don't have much by way of manufacturing. A few little sawmills here and there, nothing like Cadillac Lumber, which was a huge, huge lumber mill in Sault Ste. Marie. And of course, all the lumber mills have pretty much dwindled in number and size because they cut down all the trees. <laughs> yeah. There's not that many trees left, at least none of the big ones. Very few of the big ones are left anyway. So it's just specialty mills, you know, People have a mill in their backyard or in their farmyard or whatever. So there's a few of those. But there's really no commercial mills like Cadillac Sioux Lumber Company. And there is still some mining, although the, the major mine, the iron ore mine, there was two of them. One of them has since closed since I did the thesis. So that's been greatly diminished. And there are a few... Uh, few mines that have started and much to the dismay of, of all the environmentalists and the native people because they're sulfide mines, which means that they use uh, sulfur, hydrogen sulfide to get the ore out and separate it from the other ore that they're looking for, like nickel. And I think they're doing some copper even a little bit now. And they're trying to, but the number of mines have been greatly diminished. And like there's one up in the northern part, north of Marquette, in the Yellow Dog Plains. They claim that they're going to be there for X number of years, and then they're going to just walk away because they'll have mined everything out and leave behind all the tailings and all the pollution and all that kind of stuff. So we're not very happy about that. And there was another one called the Back 40 down on the near the Menominee River. I think that they have uh, they've not been given a permit to do what they wanted to do. They wanted to build this big tailing pond right near the river. And of course, the native people down there are not very happy about the mine in itself, but they're even more unhappy about the, the tailing pines that they want to put right there in the Menominee River, which is source of their culture and their food, the Menominee people. So 
I'm hopeful that some of that will never get permitted, like the back 40 and a couple other ones that they're talking about. And it's not necessarily directly related to mining and resource extraction, other than the resource extraction in the areas beyond us. But there's line three and line five uh, oil pipelines that are under great protest. I've been leading one of the line five protests. And what's Earth Day coming up here? Tomorrow is it? And I led a petition drive to try to get that on the ballot to have it banned. Mm -hmm. We did not succeed in that petition drive. But I think I can say this with not getting too many people upset. I am involved with a lawsuit. We are in the process. I've been talking to some lawyers downstate uh, involved with a lawsuit to assert native rights in the Straits of Mackinac where that line five traverses mm -hmm. and great numbers of native people have been protesting and started Standing Rock with that pipeline and moved on to line three in Minnesota. My tribe up there has been fighting it very, very uh, seriously, not mine, pipeline. And I've been leading the charge here in Michigan on line five not me personally. I mean, I am personally involved. There's obviously many, mm -hmm. many people who are involved in that. And one of the things about the line three that my White Earth Band Council did is they adopted a rights of rice as part of their rice as a person under the, the White Earth Code. And so that's what we're, those, my White Earth brothers and sisters are doing, they're trying to assert the right of wild rice to prosper without being harmed by the pollution that line three is presented. And it's, they've already done lots of really bad things. They ruptured several aquifers and they, you know, it's just a big mess. And we're trying to stop that. We're trying to stop the line five here in the Straits of Mackinac. So our environmental views of the world are very different than most people. And it shouldn't be that way, but most people look at a forest and they think, how many board feet can I get out of there? Or they look at the copper country and say, how many tons of copper can we get out? And all that stuff is very, very environmentally damaging. So that's the approach that I would take if I was to revise this, you know, the, how much environmental damage have we been doing with all these lines? And I do mention it, of course, in the revised version and uh, the problems that we face. So uh, do you have other questions? I yes, I do. Maybe? Why do you consider the UP to be an internal colony? You talk about it being well, a colony. Yeah. And basically a colony that has been exploited and probably continues to be so, to be exploited. So yes. you're officially calling right. it a colony. Can you explain that to us? Well, I don't want to get into too much of the academic sociology stuff. Okay. There was a formula 
developed by this guy, Mr. Uh, Gonzalez, whatever. Mm -hmm. And he laid out six criteria. Okay. If you want to call something a colony, especially an internal colony, then you look at these six various uh, things, like the disparity of, of wealth between mm -hmm. the colony, the UP, and the rest of uh, the rest of the society in a larger sense. And of course, the UP has been tremendously, you know, disadvantaged. Yes. You know, all the billions, literally billions of dollars worth of iron ore and copper and lumber. And even back in the older days when the fur, you know, it didn't benefit us much. You know, as far as the iron ore, we're left with big, big holes in the ground. That's, that's what we get. Obviously, people who work there get jobs, and it helps the economy in the local area. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, across the UP, it's very, very poor. Very so where did all these billions go? You mentioned these big numbers. Where did the 1.5 billion earth from copper mining, 1 billion from logging, and nearly 4 billion in iron ore go? So do we have some answers to these questions? Well, uh, most of the, from what I could understand from my research, most of the copper money went out east, centered in Boston. Mm -hmm. And the uh, iron ore, the, the biggest company was Cleveland Cliffs. They were doing mm -hmm. the mining. So Cleveland, where they had the mills down in the lower Michigan, or lower Lake Michigan area, that's where all that money went. And the copper, I mean, uh, the lumber money just went everywhere. Right. You know, it actually rebuilt the city of Chicago, for example, after they burned. Mm -hmm. And that's where that money went. And we don't really have, I mean, you can go to various localities in lower Michigan and you'll see the mansions built by the, the copper, the, the lumber barons. Yeah. We don't really have any of those mansions here in the UP that I'm aware of. <laughs> so the money went downstate and elsewhere, like I said, Chicago and places like that. And it's a heck of a lot of money, but we don't have the residuals from it. And that's part of the internal colonies concept. Of, you know, the money is taken out of here. And yeah. of course, people had jobs at the time. But once the iron ore was mined, like there's only one mine left, and there's really no copper being mined, and you know, there's, there's just ghost towns is what they are. And so what so is the prevailing industry now in the UP? What industry is like the biggest, if anything like that, if you can pinpoint that down, what, what's left there other than tourism, recreation? Is there anything left from heavy industry? Uh, well, the biggest boat industry in the Upper Peninsula is government. <laughs> they employ the government. No, I'm, I'm serious. They're here in Sault Ste. Marie. <laughs> sorry. It, it, you uh, do write about to... that in the book, how many people yep. you know have social security and all. Yep. <laughs> we, got, we got huge numbers of, in Sault Ste. Marie anyway, federal operations, the locks, you got the border patrol people, you got oh the my coast guard, 
That's all government. There's Lake Superior State. That's government. Northern mm -hmm. Michigan University. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mar or Mar uh, I keep forgetting the name of that place there. Michigan Tech, out in Hancock area. Okay. That's all government. And then you got all the local government units, you know, the mm -hmm. counties and the townships and the cities. And I don't know how many are left now. Sault Ste. Marie still, I think it's still publicly owned. It's a nonprofit, the hospital. Okay. I think we just sold it to U of M. But that was a, you know, a, a government employer. Sure. So there's tons and tons and tons of government employees. Employment. What about the and prisons? And that, you mentioned you the prisons. The prisons, yes, the prisons are all over the place. Yep. And we have. There used to be five of them in the Sioux area. I think five. they're down to maybe like two. Two. Okay. Yeah. They took over. The, they took over the old Air Force base. Okay. So some of the housing was converted, but now they've abandoned some of that. But anyway. Yeah, you're right. The prisons are a big, big employer, and that's all mm -hmm. government, of course. The school system, of course. yeah. Not only the the colleges, universities, but the, the public school system. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing because, yeah, you know, I don't want to make too many people angry, but they're really, really upset with the government. They hate the government. They want the government to get out of our pockets and our backyards and whatever. But if you look at it in the Upper Peninsula, they are the biggest employer. It sounds like and it. If you want to call tribal governments and government, that's they're also huge employers, tribal governments. So, as far as manufacturing, there's really not very many. There's you know small machine shops here and there, small sawmills here and there, but right. really that's about it. So, what were some of the challenges in writing this book, this update to your thesis? Has a lot changed, or not necessarily? Well, as far as the research goes, you know, when I did the update, I did essentially did the same kind of research, trying to find the, the newer updates on employment and mining and all that kind of stuff. The populations have not actually increased very much. We've been losing population. Michigan's losing population, of course, but that was in the 2010 census. We were the only state in the union to have lost population. I don't know how it is in the 2020. I haven't really looked at it mm -hmm. since they, those, those data came out. But, uh, the, the idea that the UP as a colony has still remained very, very strong, according okay. to the, the criteria that were laid out back mm -hmm. when I did my thesis. So uh, I'm not hopeful. There's one thing that I mentioned at the end of it when I was doing the research, it was when Trump had put uh, tariffs on steel, yeah. which of course would hurt the steel mill across the river. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, the Biden administration has not lifted those tariffs. So okay. I don't really know if there's been any movement in that direction that would be considered positive. But the steel industry is down everywhere because of the COVID and all that, the mm -hmm. supply problems that we're having and globally and the downturn in manufacturing, especially manufacturing here in the US. I suppose that some of it may be coming back because of the supply chain problems, getting stuff from China and other places. But uh, I don't see much hope 
for a turnaround. I mean, the UP has been in the depression since the depression. The depression. Yeah, so since what the are 30s, the, really. What are the major takeaways from UP Colony? The major takeaway is that uh, if you think about a colony like there may have been back in the colonial period, mm -hmm. all the resources taken out and sent back to the mother country, well, we still have that same problem here. We don't have, we do have access to some of the lumber and some for firewood or whatever. There's not many mm -hmm. solid logs going around and veneer logs, but whatever money that is being taken out of the UP is being taken out. It isn't, it isn't sitting around here to help us out. And as much as we may not like to say it, you know, we're a very, very aging population. The young people have to go someplace else for a job. And, one and they of the do. Of course, is that, yeah, and they do. We're trying, we as a nation, we're trying to address some of those issues by getting some high-speed broadband here. But, you know, it's not here yet. So if you want to, you know, work remotely from your home, and a lot of people, of course, are doing that, but they may not actually have the, the internet capabilities to do that in many parts of the UP, certainly not in rural UP. No. They may be able to get some good high speed in Marquette or maybe in the Sioux, I'm not sure, but Whoa. You know, it's very spotty at that. Spotty. What have you learned about yourself from writing this book? Well, like I was saying before, you know, I grew up as a native person. I knew that I was an, an Indian since mm -hmm. 1946. And I didn't really have exposure much to the culture just through my family there in mm -hmm. Livonia where I grew up. So that was really, really very, very important to me when I came up here to actually be exposed to native culture and have a lot of Native friends. When I went to school, I joined the Native Student Organization, and you know, I learned an awful lot about how you know, my help, culture, and heritage play a big, powerful role. And I even found out, not that this has much to do with the UP Colony book, but I found out that my 10th father, which would be like eight greats, 10th father back in 1671, represented all the Ojibwe people here in Sault Ste. Marie when the French came to lay claim to this, this part of the world. So uh, in researching for my my master, my PhD, I found out an awful lot about my own personal history. Oh, I can wow. trace my native ancestry back 10 generations <laughs> and my French back 10 generations for that matter. So it adds a lot to my perception of of the situation up here, the economic and cultural and social, et cetera, yeah. It's been, and, uh, so I, I, even though I grew up in the Detroit area, I consider Sault Ste. Marie and the UP to be my home. To be your home. Because and of that Have home. you ever considered leaving the UP permanently? Uh, the only time I left the UP was when I went down to get my master's thesis, when I went down to I get my PhD mm -hmm. and I did not sell my house when I got my job at MSU. Mm -hmm. I kept my house because I come up here every weekend to come over for my breaks. I spend my entire sure. summers up here. Sure. 
What yes, about the winters? How do you heart. handle winter up there? Do you still have snow? Uh, there's uh, still a little bit of snow on the ground. <laughs> in the woods. In the woods. Up right? in there from the drifts. But it's it's uh it's going it's going quickly. Things Good. are starting to look like spring a little bit out here. About but time. Yeah, a lot of people don't like to like the UP because of the winters, but yeah, you know, it is what it is. Right. What is you the learn, funniest? You learn how to deal with it. Or the most bizarre thing that has ever happened to you during an in-person author's event? Anything interesting or something that you'll never forget? Uh, that happened to me personally? Yeah, when you were present, um, either presenting the book or your thesis. Anything funny? Well, I presented, I presented uh, at dozens of conferences over the course mm -hmm. of my academic career. And I guess one interesting thing was I reviewed a book. Mm -hmm. It was about Bagani Gijek, was a chief on the western end of the, of the upper Great Lakes, who was murdered. He was actually murdered by one of my great uncles. Or he didn't do it. He hired some people to kill him. But anyway, I went to a conference in Canada, and I met the author of the book. And I asked him, hey, Anton, how come you didn't name my great uncle as the person who orchestrated the murder of Gagagizhi? Because that's the name of the book, The Assassination of Chief Gagagizhi. Mm -hmm. He said, I didn't want to let on what it was because it, I wanted it to be a mystery. Oh. <laughs> People would read it as a mystery. A mystery. Which I thought was kind of an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a mystery of who killed Chief Pagan although I know the answer to that question. <laughs> so yeah. here's another interesting thing. A couple of years ago, I was reading my Facebook post and somebody had decided to make a movie out of that book. Oh, wow. <laughs> I said, got to hire me. <laughs> they should hire me because I know the whole story. They should have. It's part of what I've discovered in, in researching my family history, etc. Okay. So what is so next I guess for that's kind of an interesting mm -hmm. So what is next for Phil in 2022? What are your plans for this year? Well, uh, in the authorship world, I'm having another book published. I did publish a book years ago called Indians and Other Misnomers. It covered both Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting book, I thought, but not very user-friendly. Okay. So I'm doing one called Indians and Other Misnomers of the Upper Great Lakes. And we'll just concentrate on the states surrounding the Great Lakes and Ontario. And Ontario. It's much more user-friendly. I think it'll be... Okay. Mainly deals with place names and translation and the treaty signers. And I got maps in there that show the treaty areas that were seated mm -hmm. so that people can get a little bit better idea about how this part of the U.S. and Canada was formed out, out of the land sessions of Native people. That sounds so interesting. That's, that's almost done. Yeah. Okay. And Victor Volkman is in charge of that process, too. Mm -hmm. And then I have another book that I'm working on too. I always call it The People Versus the Pope. Okay. Dr. Neb Discovery on training. Dr. Neb Discovery has been a thorn in our side since 15, 14, whatever it was. 
So I thought there would be an interesting thing to go and explore that whole thing. And people are talking about it now because the, the Pope has at least apologized for some of the problems that arose yeah. out of that doctrine mm -hmm. discovery with the boarding schools and all that. But it needs, I think it needs to be explored. Okay. That history needs to be told. Mm -hmm. So that's what I, that's what I want to do. Okay. Busy, busy. All right. Would you like to read to us, Phil? Uh, there's a little bit I would like to say here, yes. Mm -hmm. When I did the, the book, obviously revised it, and I wrote a new introduction, so I'm going to read a little bit about that. I grew up in the Detroit suburb of Livonia, the whitest community of its size in the United States. We were the only, native, we were the only minority people, I'm sure, when we were growing up there. Okay, Detroit, the blackest city of its size in the U.S., is right next door. In the fall of 1970, after my military service and spending just over a year in Detroit, I moved to Sault Ste. Marie in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, right on the Canadian border, with Sioux, Ontario, just a short bridge ride away. I was immediately struck by the contrast between these two cities, which was a wholly different contrast than that between Livonia and Detroit. Sioux, Michigan was clearly a city on the decline, while Sioux, Ontario shared none of the malaise that infected the Michigan half of these sister cities. And I have to say that Detroit's decline was not evident at that point. Right. I was also struck by the raw beauty of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and perhaps even more struck by the raw beauty of the landscape across the St. Mary's River. But they have the beginnings of the Laurentian Mountains over there. So it's very, very uh, mountainous kind of terrain over there. It's very pretty. So while I pursued an undergraduate degree at Lake Superior State College, which is now Lake Superior State University, I became deeply enmeshed in the contrasting histories of these twin Sioux and their stark contrast, one declining, one thriving. And the study that follows is a direct result of that fascination and interest. I'll read one more paragraph. When I arrived in the Sioux, on the Michigan side, that is, the population of Sioux, Ontario was about 76,000. Sioux, Michigan, about 15,000. Sioux, Ontario enjoyed two major industrial employees, a steel mill and a paper mill. Both could be seen from the Michigan side. At the same time, Sioux, Michigan had just gone through the heart-wrenching pain of seeing all of its major employers close, its population and its fortunes on the decline. At the same time, the entire Upper Peninsula was under severe economic threat with its, quote, abundant, unquote, natural resources found to be much less than, quote, inexhaustible. Thank you. Would you like to give us the details of your book giveaway? Okay, you need to have the email address, which is my name, P-H-I-L dot B-E-L-L-F-Y at gmail.com. And uh, you say that there has to be a particular heading. Could you give your readers well, podcast that? podcast giveaway Just with me. the subject line podcast giveaway. And the first one who emails Phil will get a signed copy of your book. Yes, and as long as they give me the address to send it to. Yeah, they got to leave their address. And parting shots from each one of us. Phil, you first. You're my guest. Well, I would just say miigwetch, which is thank you in our language for doing these podcasts. I think they're very, very valuable. And 
I also want to thank you for reaching out to me because what I do is academic and it's not usually very well recepted or received or even promoted because you know academics is boring stuff but I'm, I'm very happy and thankful that you've done this. I'm grateful to you that you could be on the show and explain this stuff to us because I don't think a lot of people know about UP that it could be considered as a colony. For me, it's a huge insight, but it makes sense. It really does. So okay. thank you for that. And my parting shots are buy indie, read indie, and write indie. And why not explore small presses like Modern History Press to tell your story? Read your local newspaper for inspiration. Keep your fingers on the keyboard and your butt in the chair. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.